Welcome to West Gwasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westgwasetchapel.com. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The 10th chapter in the Gospel of Luke, it's page 724 in the Seat Bibles. That would be of some help to you. I'm going to read this familiar story that probably at first hearing might be strange to hear on a Christmas Eve service, but hopefully um, we'll find out why it's not. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by one on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell on the, into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's, let's pray. Father, I approach your throne of mercy. Nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. So God, please, as your word is preached, show us ourselves and show us our Savior and show us your glory. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Do you you know this song? There, there's a place for us, somewhere a place for us, peace and quiet and open air wait for us somewhere. There's a time for us, someday there'll be a time for us, time together with time to spare, time to learn, time to care, someday, somewhere, We'll find a new way of living. We'll find a way of forgiving. Somewhere. Those beautiful words came from a song, Somewhere, 
that was saying in the movie and the musical West Side Story. And if you're unfamiliar with West Side Story, what you have there is two different people from two different backgrounds who fall in love. And yet they know that because of their context around them, a context which is filled with hate and and bigotry and racism and kind of narrow-mindedness and a context filled with people who think and do what is right simply in their own eyes, they know that the love that they have for each other and the hope of a better life together, indeed a better world, is not going to happen for them. And so, as star-crossed lovers, they do what some humans do, and they look out ahead, they look out further to that somewhere place where somewhere all is going to be well all the time, and they will be together. And in my mind, personally, I think that the release of the West Side Story a few weeks ago is very timely. I think it's timely as things are now in culture, but timely for all time, because for all time, this is in many ways the, the clarion cry of every human being. This is the cry of the human heart, the cry for something better than this, better permanently. And therefore, that is no less than the human cry for freedom, freedom from all the brokenness of this world, freedom from all its hatreds and all its defects and all its hostilities and all its uncertainty and all its lack. Indeed, sometimes even freedom from ourselves and the monsters that we can be. And so this freedom cry, this somewhere cry, I'm convinced is part and parcel of what it means to be made in the image of God. So many theologians have described us as human beings having this almost nostalgic feeling, this nostalgia of paradise lost in the fall. So we don't know what it was like in paradise when everything was perfect. We've never experienced perfection, but oh man, we miss it. And, and we long for it. And if you think about it, if you really think about it, that's why modern Christmases can mean so much to us. It's almost like medicine for a few days. A few days of something like paradise. A few days of something like heaven on earth. A few days of somewhere. And, of course, throughout history, humanity has has tried to achieve that somewhere with their own strength. That made all kinds of attempts of that somewhere to be here. Right? Peace and quiet and open air. Time together with time to spare. So there's been religious movements. Let's try to bring heaven down now. There's been utopian experiments, right? You know, just a closed group of people. We all like each other enough. We can make this thing work. Social movements. Protests. You know, we're not going to take it anymore. There's been like metaphysical gatherings of people chanting to try to bring somewhere into existence. Political strength sought to try and achieve somewhere. Nations and people have gone to war. Let's get rid of the bad people so there will only be good people so that we can have somewhere here. Even personally, right? We might have a line of living that says, okay, if I can do this, and if I can save that, and if I can plan for that, and if I can avoid this, then, okay, even if it's just like 20 or 30 years, somewhere can be here, just for me. Paradise. No problems, 
no troubles, no worries, only peace and quiet and open air with time to spare somewhere. Now, on some level, everything I just said is very human and very understandable. But I'm going to need to think, I need you to think with me, please. In many, in many ways, this kind of cry, this cry of every human heart essentially boils down to this. What, what's going to happen to me? Right? What, what's going to happen to me? And the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I know is a strange Christmas Eve text. I mean, I, I understand that. N- nevertheless, in the parable, we have a person. But he's not just any person. Chapter 10, verse 25, he's an expert in the law. And he's asking not, not really one of the biggest questions. He's asking the biggest per- question a person could ask. How do I get eternal life? You know what he's saying. It's like, what's going to happen to me? Now, properly, this gentleman was an expert in Jewish theology. If you like, he, he was an, an ancient Jewish attorney who specialized in the Scripture. He specialized in interpreting the Old Testament and then taking those teachings and applying it in, in form to people. And whatever he was... And no matter how good he was at it, we know that with all his knowledge of scriptures and all that religious zeal that he had, uh, with all that high position, it was failing him. He was being failed, okay, not only by his flaw understanding of the law, but he was being failed by all his works and all his moral effort and all his understanding. So you could say that his understanding of the law, his works, was kind of like an idol to him, and his idol was failing him. Because whatever that idol was, it couldn't quiet his mind. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me now? What's going to happen to me after I die? So he understood the law. I mean, we get that. He understood the law. He surely tried to keep it. He even added additions. People like him did added additions just on, to be doubly sure that he was keeping the law. But in all that mass of effort... The, the grand illusion of his own righteousness was just failing him, and it was crippling him. His expertise, his zeal, it wasn't enough to quiet his soul. Then all of a sudden, here comes truth, right? Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And so, he asked the question, you see it in the text, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you, if you like, again, what's going to happen to me? Now, I can see why Jesus used the road from Jerusalem to Jericho as a setting for the parable that he told. If you don't know anything about the road, the road was extremely windy. It was extremely advantageous for being ambushed. It started in Jerusalem at 1,200 feet below sea level, above, excuse me, sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, Jericho, it's 2,500 feet below sea level. And you can do the walk in, I don't know, in about 15 or 20 minutes. So it's a fast road, it's a steep road, and it's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it became known as the bloody pass. So when you hear what I read, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked at the man on the ground and wondered, okay, are the robbers still around? Are they just using him for bait? And it's equally possible that they felt that maybe the guy wasn't being true. Maybe he was faking. 
So he was acting like he was robbed. He, he was acting like he was hurt. So they would come over there and then they could, he could hurt them and maybe other robbers could grab them and steal from them, maybe even kill them. So in that context, the first question that the priest asked was, and the first question the Levi asked was, okay, if I stop to help this person, what's going to happen to me? If I stop to help him, what's going to happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came and he reversed the question. And he asked, if I do not stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? Again, if I do not stop to help this man, what is going to happen to him? Now, the first question, if I stop to help this person, what's going to happen to me? That's human. (laughs) That's man as man. It's us by nature. But the second question, if I do not stop to help this person, what's going to happen to him? That is divine. Now, we need to understand this. The parable that Jesus gave is not primarily a model to live. It's rather, it's a mirror to reveal. Now, I need you to think with me. The first question that the expert in the law asked was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so what, what do I need to do to get rid of this ang- angst in my belly, this, this nervousness in my head? I'm a law keeper. I know the law. I study the law. I defend the law. I get after the law. And Jesus, did you just give me another law? And your answer, Jesus, did you just give me another law? Thanks a lot. Now, do you see that? Listen to Luther. When I was a monk, I was the strictest monk I knew, but I didn't accomplish anything through fasting and prayer in my works. I didn't understand original sin, and I didn't realize that after Adam's sin, he could do nothing that would bring him into a state of grace. So it was by God's promise that Adam was made alive, that one of his descendants, the Christ child, would crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15. Adam believed and was saved and justified without any works. Our nature struggles fiercely against being saved without our works. That's why the expert in the law had the question. Our nature struggles fiercely against being saved without our works and tries to deceive us with the grand illusion of our own righteousness. So we may find ourselves attracted to a life that merely appears to be righteous, but that is only for a moment. It's appearance only for a moment. And a moment, or many moments, have never been enough. He goes on. And because we know we aren't righteous, we may be frightened by the prospects of life and what comes after death. Therefore, we must learn that we should have nothing to do with any way of becoming righteous except through Christ alone. And loved ones, that is why this parable that Jesus taught is given. So do you think that Jesus, as he makes his way to Jerusalem now, he's headed to Jerusalem, he's headed to die on a cross for sin, do you think that in this parable he's given us a second way to eternal life? So there's the cross, and then then there's, you know, be good to bad people or be good to needy people. Do you think he's doing that? This parable is so much more than a, a moral lesson. The lesson here is, is that... You, you can't be good enough. You and I are not the good Samaritan. Jesus Christ is. 
Jesus Christ is the only person who was ever born into this world and asked the question, if I do not stop to help these people, what is going to happen to them? I mean, if you know your Bible, the clear message from Genesis to Revelation is that either you can be eternally condemned with your own righteousness or you can go to heaven with Christ's righteousness, credited to you by faith alone in him. Faith in Christ, saving faith. Faith in anything or anyone else is simply either superstition, it's tired religion, it's pointless, and it's powerless to deal with life now and to deal with life after death. That's what this expert, this high-minded, strong-in-theology expert was coming to grips with, hence his question. And so Jesus Christ was saying here, perfectly loving God and perfectly loving our neighbor is perfect righteousness, okay? Perfectly loving God and perfectly loving your neighbor is perfect righteousness. And perfect righteousness is what one needs to inherit eternal life. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, with, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Do this and you will live. You can't see it in English, but in, in Greek, it's, in present, it's present active indicative. It's like it's perpetual. Do this all the time. No letdown. No bad days. Do this right every time eternal life is yours. Do this and you can be justified by the law. Now, anyone feeling strong enough to say, that's me? Anyone feeling strong enough right now that their works can take them to heaven? You see, what Jesus is saying here is what Paul wrote in Romans 1 and Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 7. Listen carefully. The law simply condemns. And it stirs up what it forbids. Sin. When Jesus gave the expert in the law, the law... The expert tried to do what? He tried to justify himself. Okay, then tell me who my neighbor is. Right? Tell me who, who my neighbor is. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Who's your neighbor? It's a big question. <laughs> I mean, in this context, it was like, okay, this is what I need to know to inherit eternal life. So who's my neighbor? Okay, your coworker who rubs you the wrong way. That's your neighbor. Okay, that's, that's an easy one, kind of. Greedy friend. People that support the Black Lives Matter movement. They're your neighbors. Republicans and Democrats. Abortion rights people. Vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, anti-boosters, anti-lockdowners, lockdowners, your ex-wife, your ex-husband, your kids who just think you're just not that great. If you try to quiet your mind with your own effort through your labor, through your religious labor, through your uh, uh, willingness to do restitution, to make amends, to set things right, like this expert in the law, this moral law of God, you'll never find peace of mind, and you'll never find peace with God, and you will finally despair. And the grand question, what is going to happen to me, will torment you. It will torment you. But when a person thinks on 
this, that their sin was laid on the person of Christ. And what the Bible teaches, listen, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree. When that captures you and that becomes real, it's like, oh my, everything changes. Loved ones, Jesus Christ alone has conquered sin. He conquered it through his birth and his death and his resurrection. When we believe this, then our sins are dead and gone because sin can't remain on Christ and the Christian is in Christ, but only by faith. So the great hope of the gospel is when a person hears this story, even on Christmas Eve, they will see that they need someone to replace them. They need someone to help them. They need someone to keep the law absolutely perfect for them. And that is just one person, Jesus Christ. So when someone asks the question, what's going to happen to to me? They needed someone before them to ask the question, what's going to happen to them? And you only have that in Christ. There's lots of people in the world who, who try to be their own God by trying to be good enough to earn their salvation. But usually, and this is the Bible, usually when those people fail, they do a couple of things. One, they try to justify themselves. Two, they try to point out the sins of others. And they try to do those two things to try to make peace with their own conscience. And that's pretty much now. More and more people who say they are Christians spend a portion of their existence condemning others, trying to build themselves up better than them. But it will not work. It will not work. One wonders, is that, is that why so many people who name the name of Christ are so angry? But at the very heart of the universe is a God who is a self-giving, loving God. So if you're in the business of trying to get glory for yourself and try to secure your own way, then, then your life is headed to this massive collision with the very fabric and being of the universe who's outside the universe, God himself. Because God gives grace to the humble. People who are honest enough to admit what this expert in law could not admit. And what was that? Well, you see it there. He couldn't admit that he needed some help outside of himself. Verse 29, I want to justify myself. So again, he throws down another question. Jesus gives him a law, more law. Love me with all you are and love others like they are you. And you see when Jesus concludes the parable with what he says in verse 20, 37, this is what should have happened, but it didn't. The expert in the law should have been honest enough and said, what, what, what I hope everyone in this room has said or will say. Jesus, I can't do what you just asked. I'm going to need you to have mercy on me. Will you, will you help me? You see it there? Will you take pity on me? You know, my eternal destiny is hanging here because I have trouble taking pity on others, especially other races and other faces and those people who are not like me, those who do not, not think like me, those who do not live like me. And so I don't know what's going to happen to me, Jesus, unless you help me. And if that would have been said, then salvation was his for the taking. 
And so the gospel teaches that Jesus Christ was born for our benefit and that everything he did and everything he suffered was for us. Again, he alone was the only person in the universe that said, if I do not stop to help these people, what will happen to them? And that's why sometimes we cannot let the, you know, the beauty and the pageantry of Christmas get in the way of the truth of Christmas. Jesus Christ did not come to hurt you. He didn't come to embarrass you. He wants to help you. If you listen to him, you will not need to worry. If you refuse him and call it good, you, will, you are willfully sentenced yourself to an eternal punishment. He didn't come to judge. He's our mediator. He's our helper. He's our comforter. He, he sits on a throne of grace and power to our weakness. As the song says, he's no stranger. He's our leader. He's our brother. He's our intercessor. And he is such a good friend. But above all that, he is our Savior. Indeed, he can be your Savior. It's been said, and this was said in the 60s, A man can't ride your back unless it is bent. And it was said during the civil rights movement as kind of like a bad statement, but I just took it and turned it good. A man can't ride your back unless it is bent. Jesus Christ bent his back for you. He bent his back for you. Will you not bow to him? Accept his forgiveness? There's just no way to run away from him. There's no reason to run away from him. He comes into this world in pain. He left the world in pain. How how could you not give your highest allegiance to someone who's immune to all that? So this is a God who knows storms. And this is a God who endured the greatest possible suffering on the cross to give you and I the greatest possible good which is life in his name and eternal life with him. What's going to happen to me? I hope most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, can say, I'm going to be fine. Only because of Jesus. If you can't say that, and just cast yourself in his arms. Ask for his mercy. And it will come. It will come like, like a flood. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God and Father, as we prepare to do what we've done for many years now, the lighting of the candle and the singing of Silent Night, we want to pray, Father, that we would understand this story and take it to heart. For those of us who have trouble just always wanting to justify ourselves, please teach us that we do not need to do that any longer. Please help us, God, this Christmas night, this Christmas Eve night, to loose those chains and be glad of who we are and who we belong to, the creator of the universe and the savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. 
There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.